0: Hello there, and welcome to episode sixty-three of Right We Are Sitting Now. Joining me this week is Mark Satir, back in the uh, back in his rightful spot,
1: my throne, my, <laughs> my, my, my regal throne. yeah.
0: this Ulysses, back in imposer or imposter. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm sure people are getting fed up listening to me rambling on about random things. So <laughs> I uh, doubt it. Uh, and nice, and it's it's good to have different perspectives and rich perspectives, and uh, you know different voices yeah and uh, that's very important actually
0: yeah it is very very important um one thing i've noted is that we've (laughs) we've had this competition run i'm actually going to extend this competition because i'm embarrassed by how few people have uh have entered it so far we have a copy of tobias if you go back a couple of episodes we interviewed the amazing tobias cherton infragible yeah Um, he's you know written this incredible series on alistair crowley and we have one copy of um uh, Alistair Crowley in England uh his latest uh book uh available for one lucky uh listener and there's the competitions on the site I'm actually gonna <laughs> to say it now because go to the the um the post on sittingnow.co.uk for um for that episode and the, the uh the competition details are all in there you basically have to follow us on instagram and answer a question a really easy question in fact if you look in the comments the answers are there but uh <laughs> anyway um but yeah so uh but we are uh, one thing i wanted to make clear is we will post anywhere in the world as well so it's not just england i think that was uh, i got a message from someone saying well i would have applied but um I'm, I'm, i live not in england but yeah we'll, we'll post anywhere as long as you can read the thing um we'll send it to you uh but yeah so, who do we have on the show this week, Mr. Satir? Well, uh,
1: uh, our friends in podcast line will have to uh, pack their own packed lunch for this one <laughs> because we are flinging open the doors of Sitting Now Towers and sallying forth um, with Mr. Uh, uh, Andy Sharp's book, The English Heretic, which uh, I wasn't, when I was reading it initially, I wasn't quite sure exactly what to make of it. And uh, I mean that in the best possible sense of the word. And um, I was fascinated to find the, the to encounter the mind the, and the creativity behind that, and the imagination behind that actually. And uh, uh, I, I, th- I well, well, yes, well we, we're on the we're on our path to that. And so you you're, you're going to join us, going to join us. Bring that packed lunch with you, <laughs> and um, we will be we will be on our
0: way. Oh, Well, let's get let's cut to that right now hi Andy Sharp thanks for joining us on the show today um could you give us a brief biography of yourself please
2: yeah so sure um so I'm kind of best known for running a project called English heretic that started around 2003 uh and it's it's a, it's a really a multimedia project um I was doing music at the time, and it was a way to tie in uh, music delivery with uh, written material because I was also very keen on doing writing and and come up with and I came up with this idea of uh, of combining the two in in this kind of part magazine format. So, so that's what I'm best known for, English Heretic, and it's a, a kind of not cult subversion of English heritage, really. Um, so. That's what I did for 15, 17 years, and Tariq uh, um, at Repeater, Repeater asked me to do an anthology or we had a discussion about doing something, and I asked him if he wanted me to do an anthology of all the writing and all the part magazines that I'd done or majority of it, and, and that's what I did, really. Tied it all up into uh, 12 or so chapters. Um, so English Heretic is now that's done dusted really. So uh, I'm carrying on writing, got a couple of of more contracts, um, one for a Peter and one um, that uh, is in process at the moment, but it's not ready to go to public. Uh, So I'm carrying on with writing and in separate music projects, but sort of um, cutting off the music and writing as a, as a whole package and doing them separately. Um, So that's, that's really my biography.
0: Um, So what, what, What kind of music is it? Because I, I did—I stumbled upon your. I think it was a bandcamp page. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, but I um,
2: really kind of in, uh, post-industrial stuff. Really, you know, a lot of it was homages to kind of post-industrial music and things like early current ninety-three. I was a big influence mm-hmm. on me. The, the kind of ritual soundtracking they did. Um, so, but it's gone through a number of different phases. Not simply uh, post-industrial. A lot of the the kind of musical concepts were sort of um I wouldn't say pastiches but they were they were kind of branded by the the, the particular um writing I was doing so um, some of it was you know post-industrial and some of it was post-punk really you know so uh i I, I did stuff solo and collaboratively and had band you know full bands, seven members at, at one time so the music was kind of a, a fluid thing that um, sort of complemented the writing but it was you know playing this genre is really to a certain degree but you know I'd, I'd say post-punk post-industrial really.
0: Nice so what was the kind of like impetus behind um, the English Heritage Project like where, where did it sort of you know where did the idea kind of brew from where did you where did you get
2: yeah it it's quite organic really because i was doing uh, i was i had a kind of little micro label and i was doing this project called lost objects that was kind of i, would, I came to the idea that i would uh, make cd's and then make one off cd's and then leave them somewhere symbolic so i left one actually in watkins bookshop that was <laughs> one I left one in chiselhurst Caves. where oh who so I did all this kind of symbolic stuff and it was more about you know um you know giving away creativity I mean I was I was putting out you know like music at the time but um so so what started off as a lost object project was was looking at um uh the death of Michael Rees who was the um director of which a general's, a general and I lived in um, Ipswich and uh, I started recording at the, the crematorium and um, the cemetery where his ashes were spreading um, and then I started thinking more about I wanted to do writing really uh, um, in a more concentrated way and then I was sort of playing with the idea of, of of what to call it really and how to brand it and how to, to package it up and came up with the, the obviously the the monumental pun of English heretic, and it all took it from yeah. there, really, and everything there sort of fell into place in terms of, like, places you'd visit and and the kind of angle you have on stuff. So it was, you know, directly a subversion of English heritage and, and English heritage sort of consumerism. So I do this kind of, like, uh, sort of anti-consumerism, but, you know, pastiching the brand, homaging the brand.
1: Yeah, and and just for the benefit of uh, friends in podcast land on distant shores, uh, because I might not, you know, make that connection necessarily. I mean, obviously, we will in the UK, United Kingdom, but um, English heretic is a a spoof or, or a rift on English heritage. And I was just thinking, well, you're, you're, Ken, you're, I, aren't you a member? Are you, have you ever been a member of the English Heritage I was, I was,
0: I was for one year, but we didn't find it as good as the National Trust. So we went back to the National Trust.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I, I, I think I was a member of the National Trust more than English Heritage, um, uh, I don't think I ever joined English Heritage. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's not, they haven't got a lot of stuff to go to, really. I mean, you go, you look at National Trust and they've got like hundreds and hundreds of places and yeah. houses. And yeah. stuff, and in- English yeah. Heritage seems to have like a like a handful of castles, basically, don't they?
2: Yeah, because they're more ruined, aren't they? Like preservation, isn't it, really? Yeah, but, yeah. But, you know, there's this whole com- consumerism with English Heritage that was quite funny, you know, when you go to castles and stuff like that. And it's like, Audio guides are like five, and then you go into the shop and you've got like a tea towel and all that sort of stuff. And it's like it's really rampant yeah. consumerism that's beneath it, you know, and and a kind of commodification of history. And obviously, I wanted to play that, so you know, it was a it was a you know an aesthetic um, capsule if you like, or a package, you know, and there's something to play on. Um, I think I probably could have done it straighter than I did, and I think I went off on wild tangents, but I think that's my personality in general. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, it's funny you say that, because when I was reading the book, I, I, in the best possible sense of the word, I, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. and then, But I was absolutely intrigued by, uh, by the book, but also by the mind behind, the creativity behind the book. So I was, I was, I was looking forward to sort of discovering that if we were would we will discover that <laughs> in some form or another so yeah so yeah so that was that was an intriguing thing to me
2: good yeah yeah i mean as i said you know i think i think uh, i've got a you know quite um <laughs> i don't know florid imagination or whatever uh and i think you know looking back i probably would have Done it a lot straighter <laughs> and, and made more money out of it.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's a very rich, it's a, it's, it's a very, uh, you know. I could have, I,
2: but uh, I mean, I think I think I've got a not a low threshold of boredom, but I've got a, a particular imagination that that tends to go off on tangents, and certainly what the project did. <laughs>
1: it's, certainly... um, it's a very rich dish you offer to the, to the, to the reader. I mean, it, it's, it's it's sort of I mean, there's explicit and implicit cultural reference. Uh, points throughout. It's all sorts of galiframery of you know all sorts of different things, and uh, even like uh, I, I I appreciated that like you know there's little yeah. sneaky reference to like the house on the borderland, and but which is you know and these little tiny bits, as well as the explicit things. As, uh, yeah, you
2: know. I think that's an important thing is is that you know ultimately it it, it was a literary concept, and there's a lot of wordplay in there. You know, I'm mm-hmm. very I was well I. I am interested in wordplay and, and and kind of the the kind of magical connotations of wordplay and, um, and the particular, you know, there's alchemist called Fulcanelli whose books are, his, his book Mystery Cathedrals is just this massive sort of hermetic pun about um, um, sort of alchemical signs in Gothic cathedrals. And I think to a certain degree, that's where the weirdness comes in that's where the the, the idiosyncrasy comes in and it all, uh, and the other thing i would say you know uh the influence of robert graves' white goddess so i you know i think people get a bit frustrated with a book because it's not what or not what they perceive it to be but the problem the, 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 there is a rationale behind it because i'm looking yeah. at you know and I'm, I'm interested in wordplay and interested in generating ideas through wordplay. So a lot of that, as you say, the kind of house on the borderline. So these kind of English heritage, it's all a pun, you know, so so you've got to honour, I think, yeah, you honour the word, really. And I've always tried to do that with a project. And, and the, the part of the problem with honouring the word is that it's kind of very... Um, you know it's 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 a trickster you know your language is a trickster and it will send you off in weird tangents and
1: things like that also with like it's interesting you mentioned the mystery of the cathedrals in for because of course it focuses on the notre dame and i mean that's obviously somewhere people can actually go out into the real world and actually see these things on themselves and sort of participate in the kind of the mystery that he's, 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 offering. And you do the same thing in the.
2: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, I, I Fulcone, you know, Faulkner is a very, he, I mean, he's very mercurial and a trickster, you know, and all the theories about who falconelli was. And I, you know, I believe he was this kind of, um, dissolute illustrator artist prankster, Jean-Julien Champagne. And, uh, uh, and I've always thought, champ. You know, I think in the book I talk about canelli and I and I say that, uh, you know, he's. Uh, I think he was, you know, probably. Well, he was. He died of like um, gangrene because of his absence abuse. Uh, but I, but I've always thought he was actually a stoner, really. And I, you know, obviously a pun there in terms of. philosophy. <laughs> but I, always thought was, well, I always thought his stuff was coming from uh, smoking weed, and I. Uh, recent research seems to bear that out that um uh he was he was very interested in um rabelais uh mm-hmm. which is all kind of um a sort covert um story about hashish really um there's a really good book called libra 420 um and and that's kind of that came out and and researching it, it all fell into place yeah it was it, you know this kind of stoner weird punning language that people do you know when when they're you know smoking cannabis or whatever and um i think that's that's kind of that's where Falconelli's coming from
0: yeah. it's a kind
2: of uh a weird sort of wor- stoner wordplay and, and and i and i think i i'm doing the same
0: really. i think the, I mean, the white goddess is definitely a um a good comparison with this book actually i didn't think of that before until actually, i spotted it in the book but i didn't really make the connection before but that was kind of like uh kind of poetic you know that was it they, they call it poetic myth making don't they it's kind of like yeah 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 so
2: so you know you know again like uh i i i i, I position this book as like a pulp kind of white goddess so I'm looking at all the poetic connections uh, between sort of pulp uh, culture more than, less than kind of classical culture, though I do bring in, you know, classical I take it as far as it goes in any other any direction possible really um, so so yeah, uh, and, but that just developed organically, you know, my idea really originally was to was to do these sites and these visits and then um, put them on the website and let them sort of compost and then write fiction based on it um but the trouble is the imagination takes over and it doesn't doesn't allow you to do such a contrived thing and uh, and i think if you're really following imagination it then goes right no we, we're not going to do that we're going to what i'm going to do is going to make make reality into this kind of fiction and, and things like that and, and play with reality as a, as a as a form of um conspiratorial fiction really um, and a book that probably fed into that decision or around. So, so the project started in two thousand and three, and and I was writing fiction. So I did a couple of weird th- th- uh, books called Weird Tales, which was kind of me reassembling the f- the factual elements of what I'd done into fiction. Um, so I'd done a couple of those, but I think and uh, a a book that kind of influenced me to go on kind of the the metafictional path was. Um, was born yesterday by gordon byrne where he's kind of just l- looking at the news around about the time that uh gordon brown was taken over from tony blair and madeline mccann had gone missing and he made and he, it's just a crazy book where he's uh, he's just making all these this kind of weird masonic connection i would say masonic it's kind of like conspiracy theory, but it's about everything. You know, anything can be conspiracy theory if you like. Anything can be um, uh, associated, and I think particularly, you know, uh, the internet is very good for for this kind of um, uh, hyper weird hyper connectivity. I'd I'd call it. I wouldn't call it um, apophenia. I think that's a little bit too um, making it too much of a medical thing, but it's more. Uh, you know, it's a facet of of over connectivity and hyperconnectivity, connectivity and uh, i think I, I kind of when i read gordon burns book i, I think I'll, subconsciously i thought yeah I'll I'll, I'll I'll apply that method as well
0: and um, one thing you, you mentioned a lot in the book um and especially uh, whenever i've seen reviews of this book i see this word kind of used quite you know uh, frequently and it's one i i have to throw my hands up and say i don't fully understand what it means so could you describe kind of what psychogeography is? <laughs>
2: um, yeah, I mean, I I can't remember, but I I mean, I knew about psychogeography when I uh, I started out the project, but it wasn't it wasn't a, it it wasn't why I understand psychogeography to be because uh, psychogeography is really a almost like a political use of um, geography, uh, so so the landscape becomes this this kind of um like f- f- a set of fictive signposts really where you can make associations based on you know proximity of places or or events happening at different times in a place and you can create a fiction from place or a, uh, or a um a myth from place if you like uh, and and the psychogeography, so psychogeography came about from uh, the situationists in the 60s who were interested in in kind of reclaiming the city from urban planners and uh, re-enchanting the city and stuff like that. Um, so A, I wasn't really, it was, you know, the more, more, uh, psychogeography started off as an urban project really in, in in France, you know, to, to, to reclaim the city from the kind of sterile urban planners. So that's why I understand psychogeography to be, but I wasn't really, I don't think I was really doing that. I, I was doing kind of magical geography, if you like. So I think I was more looking at landscape as a, uh, as a portal into kind of uh, uh, some kind of, astral really some kind of but uh, like a tangible astral not like a unicorn uh, and dragon astral like a, a, a more
0: um a crowley astral maybe or-
2: a crowley astral a, a Ballardian astral or a rosean astral you know more of a kind of visionary modern astral astral really but also a pulp astral as well you know so I have all these connections as you say with houses on the borderland when i got to Crowley's house, and there's all these connections I make between Cielo Drive and Lavenham, and all, all the you know kind of all these event or uh, cultural events that happened in the '60s. So, so this geography is a is a kind of I would say it's a sort of an a cultural pop cultural geography that I was really interested in. I was interested in well, just letting things run, you know, eventually, just because because there were so many coincidences and so many connections that it just you know I'm not saying it's real but I, I'm saying you know the imagination's really working when I'm doing it I'm not I'm not contriving it in any way and that's, that's I think that's part of the problem is that I didn't contrive it <laughs> I didn't like uh, go right I'm gonna do a, a black plaque for this chap this chap this chap and then, you know so I didn't contrive it I let it develop organically by these kind of strange coincidences and things like that which I can understand is a little bit infuriating to people who want this kind of like well-contained project but that was that was yeah that was the magical element to it see that was you know you, w- when you perform magic you know it affects you and it affects your reality and, and and in this in a in a way all magic is a form of kind of paranoia really you know because you you, you you you're consciously accepting huge amounts of significance to the universe and your role
0: in the universe that's quite a good way of looking at it, actually the um one thing i mean one thing that really struck me with the book is the kind of the choices of film and television um which uh, mark and myself are kind of bound by aren't we we're obsessed with a particular era i'd say of uh, of um uh, and this actually this would be something to uh, talk to you about there, there seems to be this period of time from the i'd say the maybe even the late 50s early 60s up to about the mid 1980s where television just got really weird for a while <laughs> in, in a good way yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, film as well and uh, i was wondering if you could talk to that a little bit and, uh, what you cuz i have my theories on it and uh, on why that happened uh, but i'd be interested to hear yours yeah i
2: i i wonder whether everybody feels it from every generation but i i mean um i i think the kind of influences i had were were so, so just to just um, just to make it concrete for people who haven't read the book. So, the initial backpack. The, I do this project called this part of the part of the um, project was creating these things called black plaques. These kind of conceptual uh, memorials for very, basically you know tragic figures or occult figures and things like that. And the black plaque for people who aren't in England is a pastiche of an English heritage scheme that puts up pla- blue plaques for kind of famous people and where they've lived and where they've existed. Um, and, I, and the first one, as I said, I, I did for Michael Reeves, and I was interested in Witchfinder General. So, um, and that was, you know, there's a whole kind of agglomeration of, 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 of things why I was interested in that. I was living in Suffolk, I, I think I've been up there 10 years, and you know it was part of the landscape i was interested in his tragic story he died when he was 26 so it it was i was quite uh, you know it was quite a personal draw towards that film um and then uh the next film i did stuff about was blood on satan's claw um and these are two have just become the, 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 the you know the massive signifiers of folk horror yeah, but i mean
1: the like the um, holy well, the, the Holy Trinity. Yeah, they? yeah. The, yeah. The whole, whole, yeah,
2: but, you know, I was, you know, without wanting to say I did it first and stuff like that, uh, I was doing it, I wasn't doing it because I was aware of a kind of scene. There were things that just, I was aware of for various different reasons. It wasn't just, it wasn't just nostalgia. There were, as I say, the, the kind of, the connections be, happened organically really, so I, you know, I probably wouldn't have done a project about Witchfinder General if I hadn't been driving past the crematorium where he, uh, Michael Rees, ashes were buried. So, you know, I, I was there was a very kind of strong sense of rapport, and 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 uh, and the, the film. This film became, you know, a mysterious vehicle for 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 exploring a whole bunch of connections. So, so just backtracking on. On the particular conceit for uh, which General, I was, I got, I, I found out that um, uh, Michael, uh, the, the, the famous witch burning scene um, was filmed in Lavenham, a sort of medieval Tudor town in on the Suffolk Essex border, and then I was just kind of reading around, you know, as you do, and and I found out that uh, obviously that was Michael Ree's final film, and then. Sharon Tate filmed her final film there a year later, called Thirteen Chairs. She was murdered by Manson. Pasolini filmed Canterbury Tales there. He was murdered. John Lennon filmed Apotheosis Two there, and he was murdered. So I came to this like kind of like wild idea that the that he put a curse on the on the village, and sort of everything just <laughs> that's that kind of like I was semi-serious, but also you know kind of. Um, you know, I was playing with the idea of like you know, actually inhabiting a kind of Fortian weird world where where significance takes over from the film. So the, the films they kind of grew organically, but maybe maybe that's part of maybe the reason that they became part of my own mystery play is because they, they you know, there is something about those films and I think the the things about what I think what about those two particular films is the way the English landscape is filmed. I think it's really important. You know, the way um, these tangible places that you can visit. So so you can visit the opening scene of Witchfinder General in this village called Kersey. You can follow the path that they drag this witch up onto the hill. And I was astounded when I when I went to sort of trace this 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 opening scene from Witchfinder General and walked up the hill. I could still see the scar in the landscape for where they'd done this filmed hanging, like a fake hanging. And so even this kind of filmed event had created this scar on the landscape. And I thought it was really fascinating the way the way that you know, fiction can become part of the landscape and things like that. And the same with, same with, um, you know, Blood on Satan's Claw. I went there, um, I went there first, so, we were, sorry, just before the show, we were talking about Bix Bottom. So the famous scene in Witchfinder General, uh, sorry, in Blood on Satan's Claw is filmed in this ruined chapel in Bix Bottom in Berkshire. And it's a pretty amazing scene, you know, a uh, uh, very ceremonial and, uh, and uh, very beautiful sort of pre-Raphaelite colours, but, you know, quite horrific, you know, a horrific ending, really, you know, um, this scene. And I, I just, I, I went down there on um, May Eve, like 2004, I think, or something like that, and um, deliberately went there to, like, you know, do this kind of, you know, uh, intense sort of psychic psychogeographic sort of investigation if you like. So I took along um Robert Gray's White Goddess and uh, read a chapter that was to do with Maeve tree cults and things like that that I think felt related to the to the film. Um but it was funny when I was in the I was when I was recording in like doing a bit of sound recording and stuff like that in the ruined chapel, everybody these Picnickers kept on coming and bothering me and stuff yeah. like that. So I That's exactly what there. happened to us. <laughs> like That's
0: this exactly family, what like, happened. Yeah,
2: I'd, I'd gone there to do this kind of intense psychogeographic working, and all this family from Reading were all picnicking out there. <laughs> and I was oh god, you know, like, oh god, you know, and and I was pretending you know I had some sort of vague historical interest in it. And then like the patriarch family goes, yeah. So tell us about the history of this place. Oh, I was like, oh my god, I don't want to. I didn't want to have to get into the details of like what I was doing. all this weird activity so like kind of like oh yeah I think it's a Norman church and stuff like that so there's this kind of like humorous sort of interplay where you're trying to do this weird stuff and it's like usurped by reality so that's funny as well but later I sort of kept on having to leave because people were like picnicking around it and I went back quite late at night or late in the evening when it was starting to get dark and I was starting to speak myself out and this this uh, mum and a kid came uh like just to have a look at it and 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 the, and the mother said to the child, "Oh, this is where witches come at midsummer's Eve." and I thought, oh wow, it's amazing, isn't it? So this kind of obviously like the film has just sort of bled into the reality or the the local folklore of the place. Um,
1: yeah. uh, and also it's in this uh, big spot now. I mean it was a a village I mean around that so you know clustered around that church was was a village. I mean it, my understanding is is that in the plague they um the, they they died out the whole lot the whole village died actually I didn't know um, that I didn't know and the only thing left is is the ruined church yeah yeah and it's in and it is and it's in this wonderful on the day we were there it was in this wonderful sort of valley which if you're familiar with the film you recognize I recognize the hills around and the, and there's a there's a building another building very close by which has got which is also used in the in the same thing, and uh, actually, you know, I, I it was it was quite a poignant thing, and also yeah, it's the sort of film I'm being familiar with since a child, so it's taken on this sort of mythology in its own right. And I did I I did um, I must confess actually that I, I took a, a flint from oh, right. Big bottom <laughs> Church, and it's on my. Is on my uh, bookshelf as well. Also, I remember we found a used condom actually in the Holy of Holies. Well,
2: yeah, I found which, uh, I, I found loads. Oh. Yeah, well, not loads, but they were condoms. And and and, and more sinister than that, um, I take some photos. You know where the arch is, um, and I took photos. And then I got. And this was the time we used having was pre digital cameras, so I uh, sent them off to Boots and got them back. And I didn't see it when I took the photo, but someone had put a huge swastika on this arch. Um, uh, So, you know, whether it was being used for kind of dodgy Nazi or cult stuff, I don't know, you know. But yeah, it's kind of, that was a bit, that was kind of like, whoa, that was a bit spooky.
0: Yeah. I mean, going back to like the kind of the films of that period, I mean, I'm there did seem to be like i mean even in children's shows if you're looking at things like children of the stones and things like that there did seem to be this kind of like occult tinge didn't there um that seemed to like um i don't know it just seemed to permeate more th- parts of television especially especially in british television it was uh and that
2: came from really you know i think it, you know um whether you you're sort of looking at 72 73 so whether it was permeating down from, you know, what tends to happen in culture is it, you know, you'll get something that's hits a zeitgeist in adult cultures and then permeates down to to kind of children's TV, you know. Um, so maybe it was doing that. Maybe things like The Wicker Man, then fed down into um, say st- stuff like The Moon Stallion or um, Nigel Neal stuff fed down into Children of the Stones. See, 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 I, I think, I think that's what was happening. I think, um, whatever it was in the adult kind of melting pot, then gets dripped into. It gets dripped into the sort of, or it did, you know, I don't know whether it does now any, as much, but I think that was the tendency. Um, and, you know, and you see it, you know, like in in all forms of culture, you know, advertising. Do you remember when, you know, um, you'd you'd have punk come out and then suddenly you'd have punks on adverts and stuff like that. So it's this kind of the way that, uh, you know, one, you know, one element of culture uh Take something radical and then, um, you know, either you know, makes it sanitizes it or or makes it um, palatable for children. You know, and you obviously had things like Alan Garner and things like that. But I thought there's a really funny story about uh, J.G. Ballard, uh, and I think this is a good example of it going wrong. So Alan Garner, you know, he's a uh, uh, Children's writer, who was, well, mainly a children's writer, obviously wrote kind of adult stuff as well, like Redshift and kind of teenage stuff, wasn't it? And, and he—he's
1: oh, um, oh, just brought out a new book, actually, called The yeah, Trigger Walker. He? Yeah, yeah. The Walker. Yeah. I get
2: I get mixed up slightly. Is he still alive? I'm just sorry. Say, well, Alex, he's,
1: you know. he's, he's, hes well, he's managed to produce a book. I mean, I—he's—I yeah. mean, he, 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 yes, he's managed to produce a book. Yes, it's just come out, The Trigger uh, Walker. So. Which is funny you know, It's got the White Horse of Huffington on it, which uh, oh, that's
2: interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. So think. So I think what was happening, you'd know, had like kind of uh, an interesting, a di- different way it worked. Is so Alan Garner was making, you know, big name writing these children's books, and apparently I don't know. It's so like this it's quite a churlish bug for JG Ballard saying that Ballard wanted to make some money out of like children's novels. So he wrote Unlimited Dream Company, which is like this. He's like most pornographic book ever so he's obviously got, gone a little bit off stray so i think you know you, you've got it the other way around where yeah so, someone completely unhinged tries to make a children's book and then makes an adult book you know and, and history has that as well you know like um you know things like jonathan swift uh you know that has you know starts off you know is it for children is it for adults so i think it it works both ways and i'm i you know, without being an expert on cultural sort of shift and stuff like that, I wonder whether, you know, things like Children of Stones were permeating down from um, um, things like uh, Quatermass.
1: Yeah, I mean, if also as well with with actually, Children of the Stones. If you watch it, it doesn't. It's it's not. Um, there's nothing twee about it. I mean, it's dated. It's 1977, but um, it, there's nothing twee. There's nothing sentimental about it. It's it's it, it it's like you say. It's got it's got a, it's got a kind of. It's, it's got its challenge to it actually uh, you know it's it's got its challenge to it and um and it also it actually demands quite a lot from the the watcher because it's uh, it doesn't give you all the answers straight away. No. at the end it doesn't <laughs>
2: but I got interested I think I mentioned it briefly in 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 the book uh, and I've been reading a bit more about it, but um I was interested in the whole kind of Warnings from the warnings from the past and warnings from the future. You know that the, that um, you know maybe maybe uh, megaliths aren't sort of sites of veneration. Maybe something sinister happened in the past. There's some nuclear catastrophe happened there, and and they're actually markers to keep us away from it. Um, and there's this is a whole kind of strain of research called you know called nuclear culture, which looks at exactly. Long-term warnings to the future. How do we warn people in the future about, like, uh, a site where they've dumped radioactive waste and it's got a half-life of ten thousand years? Now, a language has got like a life of three thousand years. So, so there's this problem with people coming to these sites in ten thousand years, where, where where there's still radioactive material, but we've lost the language to to tell people about it, and I, I, I you know it suddenly struck me that um, uh, that's exactly what the the fable is in um, children of the stones, you know saying that you know they were, you know there were like they, these these druids were really kind of cosmic or ancient physicists who create this black hole.
1: Yeah, um, there's there's that 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 sort of celestial force, doesn't it? Yeah, it sort of and, and,
2: and I think it, it get. And the more you look at this kind of concept, the weirder it gets. Because actually, Quatermass Four, the last Quatermass, or Quater, is it Quatermass Four? You know, the one with yeah, uh, it's, it's, rainbow it, people. That's where, right. It's just,
1: it's just called it's just called Quatermass. Quatermass. He, he, he decided. Yeah. I don't know why. I suppose. I mean, I always thought that Quatermass Two was probably the most unimaginative. <laughs> title you could come up with really I mean the Quatermass experiment fine, and the next one oh, what should we call it Quatermass two well it's I mean uh, I mean what I mean, uh, I mean what's all that but Quatermass in the pits I mean you know yeah, at least at least that keeps you guessing yeah, but yeah. Uh, Quatermass two anyways and and the last one is is, is just called Quatermass
2: Quatermass so the yeah. last one Quatermass was was that that see see it's a different form of like kind of nostalgia I remember watching that when it came out on uh, Thames TV and I was like kind of quite freaked out by it really because it had like all this kind of mashup of of 70s kind of dystopia so you had like football hooliganism and you know kind of power uh, flower power uh, uh, terrorism and things like that all kind of feeding into this kind of um, cosmic tale where where you know these these planet people are going to um, this sort of Stonehenge type place called Ringstone Round because they're wanting to escape, like kind of society's breakdown. But actually, they're just getting harvested because these places have got markers underneath the, the, the megaliths that that draw people and then they harvest them. And I think this is a really terrifying concept, especially if you think of it in the light of like uh, nuclear culture that maybe we're not meant to visit places like Stonehenge maybe they are actually you know sites where something pretty bads happened and I'll, i you know i think and and actually the weird thing is that quatermass is this uh, nigel neal's quatermass then informed uh, this human i can't remember what it's exactly called it's called the human interference uh, project or, or human interference report and it's and it's exactly to do it's exactly to do with um um warning people in the future about radioactive waste and they were actually using quater masses uh, as as kind of source material for that so it's just this bizarre loop but i i think it gets more interesting because um one of the one of the ideas about how you transmit um, knowledge to a society that doesn't understand your language is using an atomic priesthoods, and they create folklores and nursery rhymes and stories and this is exactly what quite a mass is and, and Children of the Stones so maybe these are like folkloric tales about something that happened in the past and when you start to I love that sort of like cyclical thing of thinking where you start to get quite a sense of sort of vertigo about it could all be part of this uh atomic priesthood so anyway yeah i like playing with
0: those yeah. ideas um one um thing i can think of like where kind of a cult film meets like kind of a cult reality that uh, i think you uh, touch on in the book as well is uh, the hellfire club and, and in particular the high Wycombe kind of hellfire caves and uh, the uh abbey of philema above it the uh, mausoleum could you talk to that a bit did you i mean you visited it i imagine <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because I've actually just been doing uh, more research into cl- Hellfire clubs, and it's it's really it. yeah. There's a lot of things that come go beyond that. So yeah, so um, Sir Francis Dashwood was a kind of dilettante and set up a essentially like a kind of a gentleman's club, um, well with a kind of libert- libertine sort of remit uh, and. They originally met at um, Medmenham Abbey, um, and supposedly, you know, had orgies and kind of pseudo-satanic um, masses and things like that. Uh, then they later moved up and built this kind of custom-made cave, which is a kind of like a folly, really, and it's it's sort of symbolic of a. Um, a womb or whatever they or whatever they think it is. So, the, the Hellfire Clubs were um, kind of th- sort of pseudo Masonic and playful gentlemen's clubs, but actually, there's kind of kind of quite quite. Uh, there's some strange sort of folklore around it, and 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 I've been reading about the Irish Hellfire Clubs recently and and they were actually very violent crazy Um, story isn't
0: there the one yeah there's two actually two i can think of that come to mind the first being the the actual site of the um the club was built uh it was built on on some sort of burial ground wasn't it and the guy that yeah yeah
2: see that's interesting yes uh it's a montpellier isn't it or something yeah i think so yeah um so you got you got uh, Dashwood's Hellfire Club, but there are all these other clubs um, around Europe, really, um, and they all have kind of different flavors. But but the Irish Hellfire clubs, it, it was pretty violent and pretty nasty. There was a guy who led it called Lord Santry. who was a complete psychopath, and he supposedly uh, set fire to and um, burnt this um, sedan driver. You know, sedan driver. Pour brandy over him and and set him on fire, and this sort of fed into kind of the whole hellfire folklore. So there's this kind of folklore that develops that says that one of the initiations into hellfire club is burning a servant alive. Um, And I was I was looking up I was looking at locations uh, various hellfire clubs, and I came across this one in London called the Vulture and George, which was a pub where the where the Hellfire Club originally met, before moving to Medmenham, and uh, I think it was Thomas De Quincey has the same anecdote about they set fire to this burnt this person roasted this person alive in this in this pub. So it seems there's this kind of weird folklore that that travels across. From the english hellfire clubs the irish hellfire clubs um very interesting really uh yeah,
1: the building is um, the, the, the uh the site of the eagle then well no it's not the eagle it's the vulture and what was it again <laughs> Ge- georgian vulture yeah yeah georgian vulture yeah yeah the uh, the building's still there it's a chop house now it's, it's it's very, a, yeah very nice yeah. chop house yeah, yeah have you been yeah. there
2: oh uh, right i've never been there uh, no yeah. but i, I want to go there mm, and uh yeah. Some roast
1: servants. Well, the the, <laughs> the the basement would have been. Demand some roast. Yeah. I mean, the basement, which probably is pretty, you know. I mean, because basements in very old buildings often get, get retained. They, they don't get demand. You know, they get built on top of rather than. Yeah, the yeah, sure. so There's probably you know a lot of the original things there, and the um, what some people call the Rosicrucian lamp.
2: That's right. Yes, yes. Yeah. I was going to say exactly that. This, this, this thing, is um, sort of constant, isn't it? About how they met before the ever-burning Rosicrucian lamp, as well. And you get that at Medmenham or at Wickham, West Wickham, don't they? I suppose he met under this Rosicrucian lamp. And I'm kind of interested in what the. the, the the illusion of that is really, you know, what's it? What you know? It's the yeah. There's an element of Rosicrucianism, isn't there?
1: Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that the overburning burning lamp is somehow turned into an overburning servant. Possibly, yeah, know, yeah.
2: Sort of like, not, like a, well, yeah, you might be. You know, it might yeah, be it's in
1: some muddled yeah,
2: yeah, way. Like for you know, like Moloch or something like that, you have yeah. to. You, know, yeah. you have to make these burnt sacrifices and, at, and
1: at, in, in, in Buckinghamshire, over the over the caves themselves, as you sort of touched on, is the the I nearly said folly, but it's a, it's a mausoleum uh, to uh, which is based on the dimensions. Is based on the the concept of the Abiatharima, the Rabelaisian Abiatharima, isn't it? And um, and there's a there's a sort of filmic connection there because the very last scene in the very last Hammer horror film is filmed inside that. That's right. Yeah,
2: that was um, to the devil a daughter. So they kind of, uh, um, yeah, yeah. So he tries to make a sacrifice there, doesn't he? And to the devil of the daughter, Christopher Lee. Um, yeah, but also you know the kind of um, I was very interested in the the whole procession of the heart burial that they had for um, Paul Whitehead, who was their uh, treasurer, wasn't he? And he's kind of one of Dashwood's most loyal. Um, members and they did this kind of when he when Paul Whitehead died they did this elaborate sort of procession up to to the mausoleum and and then um, put his heart in a urn in the center of the mausoleum um and I kind of just interested in the you know that 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 not just the culture but yeah the way that Hellfire Club's been used in, in kind of pop culture. So, you had, there was a, again, yeah, I think this probably touches back on what you're saying about the way that, or oh, well, my particular interest is where you can get interested in a horror film and then suddenly you you get interested in your Rosicrucianism or, you know, it follows through to a deeper, deeper layer. And yeah, I mean, think that's links. quite important in kind of a, you know, a democratization of. Kind of the way that you learn in life, I think it's really important. This is what I wanted to get across in the book, and this is why it, it apparent this is why it kind of subverts academia in a weird way, because I think you have to be learned. By being turned on by something. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's kind
0: of Robert Anton Wilson shtick, isn't it? I mean, if you, if, you, oh. if you read Robert Anton Wilson, undoubtedly you're going to look into Alastair Crowley and <laughs> people like that. And it's, it's.
2: Yeah, and Robert Anton Wilson, again, is one of my huge influences. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mentioned mention him once, don't I, in the book when yeah. I talk about it.
0: I mean, the name of our site's right where you're sitting now, which is the name, name of one of his books. So we're we're uh, we're very uh, big fans of Robert Anton Wilson.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, no, no. I mean, he, he you know, the, you know, um, for a while he was, he, you know, when I was probably about eighteen, nineteen, he was the main man, you know, for me, you know, in terms of um, just his kind of turned onness and his kind of, you know, the the sheer fun of his stuff, you know, the the kind of synchronicity stuff was just brilliant, you know. All these kind of uh, you know ideas about Roberto Calvi and twenty three and the hangman and this sort of stuff was just really fantastic. Um, you know and and this is pre-internet where everything's everything's now debunked, unfortunately, you know and, and you know and and, uh, and now it's it, it's you know, but. I think that was really appealing to the imagination, you know, the the this, this kind of, this kind of connectivity, and I'm not talking about from a you know I'm not talking about literal conspiracy theories because I think you know we're all you know we're all intelligent enough to know where the imagination is and and um uh, you know uh, yeah we I say that yeah but but,
1: but you what I will that. say you is say that that that, but, uh, that uh, you say I that
2: Mr. Sharp, but uh, I'm kind of in a weird way I, i'm i'm what i'm doing it, it, with this kind of this kind of hyperconnected thinking is showing the danger of having a lot of information you know that uh but without without um also like kind of therapizing that that overloaded network and transmitting it into kind of like a, a pop poetry or a, you know a kind of cosmic poetry without like kind of you know literalizing it into into uh like a lizard elite or something like that but i think what i'm doing here is tapping into a human tendency to deal with information and chaos um and the fact that you know the problem is that we haven't got an elite in charge. We've got like idiots in charge. <laughs> you know, we've got fools. We've literally got. We you know we literally had a, you know, a, a, like a child emperor running, you know, America. Yeah, exactly. But also, but it's kind of it's Don't, kind of worse than the Lord of Misrule. It's, it's 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 like Philip K. Dick said that you know it's, we're you know the end of the Roman Empire really you know where. Where things have just got so chaotic that you know that 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 anybody can be, you know, any madman can be like the most important man in the world. I think like, that. and I think, um, you know, I think what's important is to transmute this chaos into creativity. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think that one of the, uh, I mean, talking of cons- modern day conspiracy theory, it does feel to me like. It kind of fulfills the function that the church used to in a way by by kind of controlling that chaos in people's minds, doesn't it? So, I mean, the church controls it by, you know, if something terrible happens in the world, well, it's God's will, and then you look at conspiracy theory. Well, it, you know, obviously this isn't chaos. This is the Illuminati. You know, it's the
2: exactly, exactly. But what it what it is 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 your you're you're, you're, um, you're abdicating your personal responsibility to a higher organization, and you're saying. Um, they actually know what they're doing when they don't know what they're doing. You know, I think Barrow said something like this: "Is that, that yeah? The, the problem is that they the people, uh, the, our leaders don't know what they're doing." <laughs> Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Um, there's no. There's no. There tends to be no shades of grey. It's the sort of you're, the more absolutes and um, and and the conspiracist definitely uh, is on the side of the angels as far as they're concerned. Yeah.
2: So, yeah. But I, I wonder whether this is this is a new religion come. You know. The, I, I think things like social media are medieval technology, to a certain degree. You know, we're, develop- we're developing new medieval technologies, really, and 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 with that comes all the kind of the awfulness of like the rack and, <laughs> and stuff like that. Uh, because I think we, the you know, Silicon Valley, the people who 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 created things like Facebook, shouldn't be creating interact uh, software <laughs> at the human inter- human computer interface simply you know without kind of sociologists and you know psychologists and uh, and you know people who, who who care for the soul of society <laughs> so yeah
0: it's Werner Herzog made a documentary uh, not so long ago called Lo and behold and he says you know his kind of um, conclusion, it's looking at the internet. It's it's basically Herzog on the internet, uh, and it's uh, his conclusion was that human beings aren't meant to be this connected, un kind of unadulterated or un kind of shepherded. Absolutely, a
2: hundred percent agree. A hundred percent agree that 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 you invent a technology that overconnects people. You're you've got a recipe for disaster, you know, um, because you we we're simply not wired to 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 handle that amount of uh, discourse and uh, disagreement. And I don't know, you know, we're, it, we're not, you know, we're not wired for that, you know. Um, and I, I, He's absolutely right. I think he's absolutely right. But we've, you know, we've created it, you know. Um, uh, you
0: get these kind of lynch mobs online, don't you? I, I, Ronson, John Ronson called it uh, cathartic bullying. Um, and you see it on both sides of the political spectrum, you know. These yeah.
2: I think the interesting thing that came out of the the, the Capitol Hill thing was this is um, I was doing some writing or doing some research into um, this this terrorist attack on uh, Greenwich in the nineteenth century. This this French anarchist tried to blow up Greenwich Meridian, and and it was kind of a symbolic act that he wanted to actually blow up the the. British ownership of time and you know the 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 kind of imperial concept of time and I'm kind of thinking you know like in an, an Alan Moore type way it would make a great comic book if some like kind of like a Joker type character went and blew up time at, at
0: Greenwich. <laughs> like sapphire and steel or something.
2: Yeah. yeah what would happen? I was thinking well if it's like an Alan Moore book you'd get all these kind of like different characters from London's history popping out. you other have the Jack Ripper and all these kind of, you know, all these kind of people would blow up, would come out of, like, this black hole. And I suddenly realised that's exactly what happened at Capitol Hill, <laughs> you know, is that, is that um, what what Trump inadvertently managed to do was to blow up people's concept of reality and where they were in reality. So you had all these people that he would whipped up online and suddenly they found themselves dressed up as like showmen and, and, and superheroes at Capitol Hill. And what I got the impression of watching is most of them looked really confused as to why they were actually there. They were like almost like bewildered and people saying, oh, well, they're on drugs. And I think they weren't. Well, they were. They were on like kind of whatever drug, whatever neurochemical happens from being on the internet too much. Um, but what had happened is that like, Kind of like the joker or some villain in in a in 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 a Batman's, he'd managed to kind of explode people's reality and 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 then they they just ended up on Capitol Hill following his instructions, wondering what the hell are we doing here?
0: I think one of the, I mean every now and then something good can come out of kind of the corporealization of internet stuff i am thinking of like early anonymous was a particularly um interesting one, the Chanology protests you know the uh, anonymous versus the church of scientology i thought that was, oh yeah yeah
2: yeah I, was, I
0: went to the um the protest for that and it was just the most surreal thing i've ever seen in my life this hundreds and hundreds of people with fifa vendetta masks on uh, protesting. And
2: was that at the church of scientology in london was yeah there was
0: would... they went to oh, two different Last
2: weekend yeah it was kind of it's an amazing building wasn't
0: it yeah yeah it's it, i mean it's uh it was just so strange though seeing this kind of um you know, the internet come, you know, come into become, reality. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was, uh, uh, so, I mean, that, I'd say that was more of a, you know, a, a good use of, uh, <laughs> of that yeah, rather yeah, than. but
2: it's the same process, isn't it, where people are, 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 are sort of just, they're in this kind of, um, yeah, it's a better, better example, but I think it was, a, you know, it's a terribly frightening thing the way that people, I think the most frightening thing about the capital of the hill thing was how confused they looked. It's as if they have been just blown out of this kind of portal and like wearing weird clothes and like looking shit we're, we're actually in this building and,
1: exactly, and yeah. we don't
2: know how we got here you know because we've been so you know our reality has been so manipulated that we actually think uh we're you know what we're doing is sane you know
1: yeah i mean there's an element of cosplay to the that as well wasn't there i mean if uh yeah, yeah yeah i mean if the if the if the village people ever had a conspiracy, it would be that shaman it wouldn't it yeah yeah, if, if yeah. non-shaman <laughs> yeah
2: but anyway yeah so these things are you know i think uh just going back on my back on what i was saying i think it's really important to keep this stuff in the imagination and to make use of it because the devil does make work for idle hands <laughs> yeah.
0: you know and um, one part of your book i found really great was the you you draw a kind of comparison between kenneth grant and jg ballard
2: oh yeah, uh, I was wondering yeah If you could
0: yeah. talk to that a bit as well that's one of my favorite parts of the book
2: good yeah because like, that sort of winds people <laughs> up a bit. winds ballard purists up because um because they say oh ballard wasn't interested in the occult and things like that and i agree but i, I think ballard had a bit of a blind spot about it um so just to go back on it you know Essentially, what I'm doing there is is just honouring my kind of adolescent self or late adolescence. Uh, I was very interested in Ballard when I was probably from about 15 to 20, and then got very interested in Kenneth Grant from about 18 to about 25, you know. So, you know, when you focus on two people with a kind of quite powerful, although different worldview, um, you tend to make connections. You tend to think, oh, well, that that's like that, that's like that so, you know, I, what I'm doing there is honouring my kind of adolescent obsessions there, so I was interested in my, my two main influences in adolescence work, Ballard and and Grant, and then, so I was looking for the connections between um, their work, and I, where I think they really meet is in, is in this concept of the cliff-off um, so, Grant was obsessed with, like, the reverse side of the tree of life and um, uh, and so on the tree of life, you have Sephira and you have guardians and paths and stuff like that. His concept on the other side of the tree of life is, I mean, this is not his concept. It comes from um, Greek Kabbalah, uh, sorry, Hebrew Kabbalah. Um, and uh, on, on the reverse side of the tree of life, you have demons and uh, sentinels guarding um, empty shells and kind of
1: yeah that's what the ruinous
2: versions of these yeah. kind of spheres and it's quite complex in terms of uh hebrew mysticism but the idea of the cliff off is they're kind of broken shells so so reality is this kind of shaft of pure light and and where it gets broken there's a kind of shell remi- remaining over it And so that's what he- but grant looks at all kind of like ghoulish things like vampirism and and tantra a left-handed path, magic, tantra, um, voodooism. He brings in, as you say, he brings in pop culture. So he brings in things like poison cults of Fu Manchu and um, uh, Bella Lugosi, and, and ties in again. He's in sort of this pop uh, or culture, um, but L- lovecraft magic, lovecraft. really. Yeah. But Ballard was interested. I think Ballard was interested in, in like a modern rendition of cliff off and the cliff off are these kind of like sort of they're the ruins of uh violent technology and technology that's um used for uh destructive purposes so you have like weapons ranges and you have like crashed cars empty swimming pools things like that so my my the way I like to tie in that the, the the ballard was like looking at the, the kind of powerful magical specter of technology and what he was talking about is analogous with what Grant was talking about with the powerful magic by of like a, uh, transporting yourself to the cliff off and these shells and these kind of dark energies that come from there uh so that was that's that's kind of one of the drifts that that i look at the connections between their their work so i look at uh weapons ranges as in one particular piece i I looked i went to this weapons um uh atomic testing place in suffolk called orford nest where they where they tested the detonations of the uh, British atomic bomb. And it's a kind of brilliant Ballardian landscape. It's it's exactly like something from Atrocity Exhibition, abandoned weapons ranges. But I kind of looked at it from an occult point of view, from a a Grantian's occult point of view. And the other thing with Grant, he was obsessed with the kind of magical... um, the magical truth of of Lovecraft's mythos. So I kind of looked at this place as a kind of Lovecraftian landing site or something like that, um, you know, uh, and a breeding of the old ones and this sort of stuff. And, I mean, it was, it's very playful, really, you know, but, you know, metaphorically, I'm I'm, I'm making this connection between um, uh, this branch of Hebrew mysticism called the Cliffoth and um, sort of dangerous... Uh, haunted
0: technologies it's interesting you um brought up Orford Ness because I don't know if you listened recently The BBC did a I think it was a podcast only but they did a a series which was like a Lovecraft inspired um it was like a fake podcast I think it was called no, the, I haven't heard
2: this This sounds good <laughs> it, it,
0: it, the, it was named after Lovecraft books as I think like, the first one's called the case of Charles Dexter Ward the second one's the whisper in the shadows you know um, in darkness rather um but actually, interestingly, Orford Ness is, is is mentioned heavily in in one of the one of the really? series. Really, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, so there's another connection for you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you no, for no,
2: we go. <laughs> yeah, so I was kind of just mashing stuff up, really. Not, I think mashing up makes it sound a bit try. I was, I was connecting to disparate influences, you know, very very profound influences, and uh, and synthesizing into a kind of new narrative myself, really, and a way of. Perceiving the world in the way of like creating terrifying stories. <laughs> in a way, you know, that's exactly what I was doing. Uh, you know, I say, you know, uh, the uh, Ballardian purists, you know, get c- quite cross about it. But I wrote an essay that looks at um, the way that you can move from a psychoanalytic reading of Ballard to an occult reading. And, and and in that, I'm not saying that Ballard was an occultist. I'm saying that. There is a continuum between the psychological paradigm and the occult paradigm.
1: Yeah, maybe uh, maybe uh, Ballard wasn't interested in the occult, but maybe the occult was had an interest in. Well, him.
2: the thing is, it's, it's it's a question of definitions, really, because he's you know, if you read he 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 uses the word magic in a way that isn't like Paul Daniels. It's more like you know occultism and he uses magic in a a transcendent way, and he talks about magic. I believe in the power of uh, the imagination to transform the world. I believe in the magic of, of like, um, abandoned, you know, car lots or something like that. So, and I don't think he's using that in a kind of, like, um, a trite way. I think he's using that in a kind of mystical way. And if you read like Ballard's later short stories, they, they are right on the runway to mysticism. There's a one called um, "Report on an Abandoned Space Station," which this guy goes to look on the space station, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it gets infinite. Um, there's a story called uh, "One Afternoon on Utah Beach," which is actually feels more like a kind of it's it's like a kind of World War Two. Uh, ruin Mr. James' story where this guy. He's he's uh, he's with his wife and her kind of suitor, and they're in this um, holiday resort on the north French coast. And he becomes obsessed with this uh, Nazi bunker and befriends this this German soldier, a Nazi German soldier in there, and who. who it appears to be a ghost. Well, he is a ghost, you know, and he's also got this hallucinate, hallucinated sort of relationship with this this ghost, and and then he shoots himself, and he is the ghost, you know. I think he, this is like M.R. James, you know. It's not it's not like a, you know, it's it, it's not social realism here, you know, and it's you know this is this is you know this is this is modern ghost stories, and this is happening, exactly what I'm saying with. Um, you know, kind of his treatment of these um, these these um weapon ranges, I think he, he creates ghost stories on them. You know, I think in a uh, the exhibition there are quite a lot of ghosts in there, Clo- Coma and Klein, these kind of weird half-human people who travel around in the back of the car with this guy who's having a psychotic breakdown. There's that, there's a chapter called The Hymn, which was a new order made into a song, didn't they, called The Hymn? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's about this like Christ, on, on uh, ma- manifesting on a um, as a pop star or something like that, but also in, in a in a plane, he comes. Uh, I can't remember. He's near like a uh, an extra astronaut or something like that that comes from a a, a touchdown or something like that. I can't remember the exact. But see, uh, this is where I think you know. Where's your? Where isn't your cult in that those kind of stories? Where isn't there the kind of supernatural in those things?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. <clears throat> I know, Mark, you wanted to talk about Robert Cochran at some point.
1: Well, he gets it. Yeah, yes, so he gets mentioned, doesn't he? In the um, in the book, and you visit his uh, his his former house in Slough.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a funny. That's a funny, again, it's just a kind of. As I said, you know, I think the what I really enjoy about in the, the process of doing the project and look back is that it, these characters came to me organically. There were one would just feed off the other. They were like Russian dolls, you know, oh, and he he feeds off him. And I can't remember exactly how I got in Robert Cochrane, but it was fairly organic. Um, and he was, he was an interesting character. So he was a, a blacksmith and um, he set up a kind of modern witchcraft association in the, in the in the uh, um, mid 60s and it became you know it became pretty successful and he became a kind of charismatic cult leader Um, and then he took a lover from the coven and um, and then uh, his marriage started falling apart and things like that and he decided as a mixture of sort of like I suppose, megalomania and and depression, decided to um, self-sacrifice himself on Midsummer's Day in 1966. And uh, he used to do rituals in his garden in Slough, so he's got this kind of really quotation sort of housing estate that he lives on, and he's got these kind of imperious thoughts about being this reincarnating witch or warlock. Um, and so he, he took an overdose of belladonna and sleeping pills and uh, fell into a coma. I uh, was in a coma for 10 days and then eventually died. But um, uh, there yeah, there was quite interesting stories around it. There's a guy called Alan Richardson. Was it Alan Richardson or was it William Gray? One of the two. Alan Richardson wrote a book about William Gray, but uh, William Gray was a kind of, is kind of a, a, a bit of a sort of occult troublemaker and a, and a kind of cunning man, but also a bit of a, a you know spin, spin uh, kind of big yarns and things like that. And he claimed that after uh, Robert Cochrane died, um, I, can't it, well, I can't remember the exact story, but uh, but uh, he he started communicating with two a couple that had died in a car crash and 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 someone got pregnant in the coven that believed that they were Robert, Coch- uh, Robert cochran Robert Cochrane after he had died and impregnated them and stuff like that and uh, um and this William gray uh, reckons he went up to the, the cot where the baby was he goes if you are the reincarnation of Robert Cochrane show me a sign and the baby lifted its finger and <laughs> pointed him kind of like. Basically, like Rosemary's baby, you know, sort of weird sort of stuff going on there. So, I mean, it's a, it, it's, you know, it's kind of make a great sort of tragic comedy in a weird way, you know. Um,
1: uh, yeah, my my understanding of Robert Crocoran, I mean, he, it, I mean, he obviously he died as you pointed out and at a relatively young age. I've always wondered, I mean, he was, um, sort of leading at the time a kind of a version of the witchcraft cult. In a similar way that Gerald Gardner and Alexander's definitely, did. yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, uh, and it would be. In, uh, there's a, in, there's a parallel universe somewhere where he doesn't die, and I was intrigued about what would have happened. Would he where it would have influenced things? How it, you know would we be even talking about Wiccan now? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, with the uh, the black plaque things. I mean, the first pagan, uh, first person to be given a blue plaque in in the in the uk for the the work they did for informing the pagan federation federation originally and the, the the sort of um work in that area is doing valiantum during valiantia it was uh, um initiated originally by gerald gardner but she also was initiated by cochrane as well
2: yes yeah definitely very interesting woman as well yeah there's a have you ever seen that documentary that she appears in from about 1970 oh, wow. was on telly um and she's a she's kind of a is
1: it witchcraft today or something like that.
2: Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's the I might be thinking of the other one, Eleanor Bone. Um, yeah, but the, is it called Witchcraft Today or something like that? Isn't something it? Something
1: yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. yeah, but yeah, it's the fact that the, the, the whole kind of media is fascinating. Some really interesting characters. Yeah, but uh, um they're, she's quite formidable
1: as well. You know, uh, she used to uh,
0: uh, do her laundry at the same place, Mark. Um, did his laundry right. Right.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> on the same morning. On the same morning, I can't claim to be, uh, you know, I mean, I can't claim I, I knew her, you know, very well or particularly well, even, but um, or was initiated into the third degree during the drink <laughs> cycle or something. But, um, uh, yes, yeah, so on the Monday morning uh, uh, when I used to do my laundry, she used to come in at the same time. So <laughs> we, were, we were on some uh, level of acquaintance.
2: Yeah, I can't remember whether it was, was Alex Sanders and Robert Cochrane that wanted to have a magical standoff at, you know, what the stones were, Alan Garner used to, um, just outside Manchester. But there was a talk of a magical battle, wasn't there? But I know Alex Sanders, but I can't, I, I might have, it might have been Robert Cochrane or one of the others. But I love that, you know, the, very theatrical the, the kind of um, these charismatic characters, a very there's a, there's a great theatre around it and um, and and again all these kind of weird webs of connection. Um, so so there was this infamous satanic rite that was performed at this church in Clopp uh, Clop in uh, 1963, and again you know you, you hear the same people again like. Uh, Robert Cochrane knew about it, and do, do you see what I mean? So there was this yeah. kind of, and and this is where you know it's easy to see this kind of metafiction, this almost like Alan Moore type world that was really existing, where all these kind of characters are moving in from one scene to the other and, and sort of trespassing each other's realities in a weird way. Yeah. Another interesting guy was this guy called Charles Pace, who uh, who claimed to be, uh, well, he was a a Satanist. uh, uh, But he was also, uh, he also did the murals for um, Boleskine when um, Jimmy Page lived there. But he was also a News of the World informant. So all this stuff was kind of, you know, it was kind of uh, being used to, spiced up in the News of the World by by these people who had one foot in each camp, really.
1: Yeah, I mean the uh, the clock hill um, uh, incident. I mean that that take that put, took place at St Mary's Church in um, Bedfordshire, and, uh, yeah. it's there. and the and and similar to Bix Bottom, actually, because originally I don't think it was for the same reasons. It's a much later church. The um, the the sort of villagers sort of slid down the hill. And, I didn't know uh, that, uh, and well, so it's not surrounded. You see, it's not surrounded yeah, by it's the quite, village. Yeah, it's quite elevated. It? Yeah, so it's up on the hill, and yeah, and so the the the, the actual village um, of Crop Hill is actually in you know in the valley, and uh-huh. it's so and it's sort of so it's sort of it's sort of isolated up there. Also, I know you you mentioned. I mean, I've been to A very long time ago now, the um, uh, Crop Hill, and uh, I've, I I dug out. I remember digging out. From the local library, the sort of the local um, uh, news coverage of the whole thing. They had some photographs of some. Pho- yeah, the, the, it was in quite the, the um microfish was in quite a bad state. They had some sort of very, uh, sort of photographs of very blackened bones, which had been sort of in, you know in inert. And um, the 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 you mentioned it in your book, Mister Sharp. The uh, the the Celtic cross carved into the into the uh the, the the wall of the church what's left of the church i i suspect uh, um I'm not, I'm not sure but I, I i've always suspected that might be in an attempt actually to reconsecrate the church because it's right. consecrated I, 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 that's my speculation um and at the same time around that time that there's a whole spate actually of sort of uh attacks, de- desecrations on churches, you know, in, in, along Sussex, is it, Alfriston Church and the oh, Church like of in Bramber? The
2: early then. In the early 60s, this would Yeah,
1: be, there's a whole series I didn't of those. that, right. Yeah. Yeah, was...
2: I don't know how much of this came from Wheatley or something like that, you know, kind
1: of... Yeah, well, if, they, yeah, if, if yeah. it was a, how, how much of a serious... How much genuine because that's an important thing. How much how much was this a real you know Satanic t- movement? Yeah. Well how yeah. how how much was this was just tomfoolery sort really, I
2: don't know. I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting that uh you know, you've got people like Charles Pace who who are you know, who claims he knows exactly who was involved in that. Um You're right. but uh I don't know, you know, he he, he was, you know, he, he's almost like a double agent. So he's, he's, you know, he's, he's playing for the, you know, he's playing for the sensationalism. So you can get an article mm-hmm. in the news of the world. Mm-hmm. There are all the clippings that, you know, he's got some outrageous claims. He's almost got like kind of a, like a, a witch cult, every man. So he claimed to, you know, have like been to orgy, it's sort of sat- all satanic masses with people in the Profumo case. He'd seen this kind of sacrifice in Ostia where like some, some high-ranking member of the Catholic Church was involved, and it's really interesting, you know, this this kind of uh, just just the imagery is really fascinating. I mean, I've been um, I've been sort of following uh, following through some research on into um, Joris Karl Huysman's *La Baie*, which is which is about mm-hmm. my favourite book, really. Um, such a beautifully written. He's such a beautiful writer, but. Uh, um, I've been sort of researching the the, the threads that he visited a uh, black mass and yeah. uh, and again you know this this stuff is like kind of everybody thinks a black mass has happened but you know where's the evidence that we, uh, you know a black mass has ever taken place historically you know things like that
1: yeah. you know
2: whatever genuine yeah, a mean- genuine black mass might be which is yeah. a kind of you know. Uh, you know, an abuse of the, um, the Catholic Mass and the transubstantiation and things like that. Yeah, so
1: I mean, I mean, only only a consecrated priest can.
2: Exactly, yeah, but you know, Houston was was convinced this guy called Louis Van Huyck, who was this kind of silver-haired canon of the, the in, in Bruges, was a practicing Satanist and had uh, crosses tattooed to the soles of his feet and. Um, created like these curses through feeding mice, uh, kind of uh, communion hosts, and then using the blood of mice to send curses and things like that. And uh, you know, Hussman was convinced that this guy was a satanist, and everybody's convinced that he wasn't a satanist, other than, other than uh, you know, kind of Huxman's hysteria. So a lot of it. A lot of the modern kind of stuff comes, I think, from from Bar, Really, you know, the, the the you know, he's almost like decked out a century's worth of heavy metal covers and uh, <laughs> and uh, and end scenes to hammer horror films from his from a from, from this book. There was a serious book, you know, uh, and he claimed of of seen a black mass at which um, this Louis Van Huyck was a witness to. So, who knows? You know. Um, well, uh,
1: I mean, in, I'm going to say in in Paris. I mean, in the 1890s, you could, if you were a tourist, you could you could pay to see a black mass. But how, how, like you say, yeah, how ingenuity. much of that was theater?
2: And how, you know, how yeah. much is that? You what know, was was you know, where is where? You know, how much is that? Is just a kind of theater? Yeah, as you say, you know that you you know it feels like yeah. There's this. It's almost like a. You know, it's like a, a vaudeville show or a burlesque or something like that, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and 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 um, I think Wiesman's he knew the felicine ropes as well. He, he did,
0: yeah.
2: And I actually, I just actually just got back from Belgium, so I went to Bruges to look up this stuff on uh, Louis Van Hike, and then I went down to Namur to uh, Felician Ropes Museum, um, which is. Yeah, you know, it's fantastic. His works, you know, it's pretty. It still packs a
1: punch. It does, isn't That's it? Strange. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and the strange thing was, I, as I was coming back from the church, uh, from the museum, I went past this church. I think, ah, oh, that looks as though it's really kind of black and pink marble, really kind of a opulent but threatening kind of church. You know, one of those Catholic churches that looks more Masonic than Catholic. And I went in there, and I was kind of like. Wow, this is yeah, definitely influenced Rob's. And there was this confessional, that was like a really ornately carved wood confessional. Not at all humble, not at all, you know, with the kind of like um uh like green men type figures on it, you know, and like these kind of like swirling sort of columns, you know, very, very uh, uh you know, very pagan really. I was thinking, wow, what an amazing place. And I came back, and then I was doing a bit of research, and I found out that um, Baudelaire, um, Charles Baudelaire, became very good friends with Felician Rops and went to Namur. And he was visiting this church and marvelling at how, you know, how decadent it was, and he was marvelling at this confessional and then had a, a... an epileptic seizure that led to his death, looking at this, really? say, professional. Really? I think, whoa, what an interesting kind of uh, yeah. dark sort of, seems to like greatly bad vibes for decadent uh, poets and things like that. So yeah, there's an interesting connection from visiting the Moor recently.
0: Um, so, I mean, I guess we should uh, we should look at wrapping this up a bit. Is, um, is the English Heretic uh, Project over, or are you continuing it, or...?
2: um yeah it's over yeah yeah so i can't really i mean having done the um having done the anthology I-, I think you know it's time to wrap it up really um because you know uh it was always meant to be an organic thing and uh, and and it feels that once you've done an anthology um and it's it's out there in the world that it's time to kind of move on and try some other things
0: can people still get the original? um you did some, you did of almost like fanzine kind of magazine things, didn't you? Um,
2: yeah, I got. I mean, I, I'm not very, I'm not very sentimental, so I mean, people have got them, but I haven't. I don't keep copies of my other stuff. I mean, I've obviously got some soft copies and things like that, but and there are a few that you uh, that I could get reprinted and things like that, but I don't keep copies. But there, you know, the there's a, there's a few that 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 um, are still up. Uh, you know in a safe house with a printer somewhere but I don't I doubt whether I'll actually ever get round to to republishing them again because uh, it doesn't feel so there's any point really but there's but you know there's there's copies out there in the world yeah so
0: and um, uh, what else have you got in the pipeline have you got anything you can talk about yet or uh,
2: yeah I mean I, I'm working on a book for repeater which is about about um, it's a kind of focus on film and it's double really. So it's kind of looking more specifically at the way that film and reality bleed into one another, but it's taking a slightly different tack from *English Heretic*. It's it's kind of pulling away from uh, the kind of uh, using uh, you know the Fortean type stuff, though there is elements of it. But I'm treating the double in a slightly different way as a as a kind of critical method, really, an interest, a more interesting critical method by by by, you know, looking at uh, a film and it's double. So in order to give you a rough example, uh, I'll try to think of um, one of the chapters I can... Let me think. So, yeah, so I'm looking at... uh, There's a chapter on a film called Herostratus. Hmm. Which was by Don Levy, and it's a kind of experimental film that. Was yeah, we filmed. watched
0: that together, written not so long ago. <laughs> what do you think of it? Um, it's very interesting, isn't it? It's, it's the one with Helen Mirren, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's the yeah.
2: first film. Yeah, yeah. So I love it. Yeah, so it was the only film that Don Levy ever made, and he committed suicide, didn't he?
0: Yes, yes, right. Yeah. And,
2: and, and Michael Gothard committed suicide as well. So I look at uh, I look at the kind of psychological fallout of that film, um, and. Uh, And, again, I say it's not like English heretic. This is exactly like sort of English heretic thing. I found out that, um, uh, uh, you know, at the end of the film, Michael Gotter, uh, a kind of um, poet who wants to commit suicide, but he wants a marketing company to brand it. Um, And he ends up, like, running up this building to commit suicide uh, uh, above St Paul's. And uh I will I will give away the ending, but uh, um I, I subsequently found that there's like a suicide hotspot around there. Um I shouldn't laugh because uh, I mean, it's, it's very tragic. But yeah, so, so it's like English Heretic in that. So that's a that's a particular chapter that's like English Heretic. So I look at the I look at not just the psychological fallout, but I look at you, you know, the 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 metaphor in, in in the in the local landscape and stuff like that. There's a building nearby called Number One Poultry, which became a, a notorious suicide spot for city workers. You know, they go up there, have their last meal, and throw themselves off. So oh, I that, kind of look at the parallels.
0: Is that near the Barbican? But is
2: that near St Paul's?
0: Yeah, it's like it's like a big um, meat market sort of area, isn't it?
2: Yeah, poultry's. Yeah, no. I think number one pou- poultry is.
0: Oh no, no! I'm thinking of. Yeah, I think I think you're thinking about uh, poultry well, lane. I think, I it's, think it's, called, it's called, isn't it? <laughs> uh, Smithfield. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So um, number one poultry is this weird, weird nautical-like building, or postmodern building. People hate, but well, I think it's absolutely fantastic. It's really, really weird. Um, so I'm uh, kind of looking at um, that's a, that's an example of a double, more English heretic-type double. Um, but some of the other chapters I look at, um, um, I look at, I've got a chapter on autonomic cinema, what I call autonomic cinema, where um, films are allowed to just happen. Um, so I look at, uh, um, I look at the work of uh, an artist called Douglas Gordon, who did, um, who slowed, um, psycho down to 24 hours um, so last 24 hours so it's a weird weird kind of denatured version of psycho and he and he and a, a number of his other projects that you know he's using cinema in a way that is opening into this kind of immersive thing i look at in that same chapter i look at um i look at a film called idy in an auto portrait where uh, this guy called Bernd Schroeder went out to make a documentary about Idi Amin but Idi Amin ended up direct, sort of taking it over and the director just let him run with it and And, and it's an amazing film for the fact that uh, it, the directors then just realised that actually he, well, he can get a far better picture by just letting this dictator take over this film. So there's lots of different angles I'm looking at, it's not it's not, it's not, you know, it's not just occult, it's, in fact it's not, you know, most of the films aren't really occult um I look at the omen the curse of the omen and, and dig quite deep into that um uh but I also look at um kind of more psychological fallout so obviously the psychological fallout from Herostratus and I look at the films of Jane Arden as well which are amazing dark films
0: Yeah I don't think I've seen any of those yet uh, They
2: they're pretty amazing <laughs> Yeah yeah <laughs> a... uh, like kind of acid acid psychiatry <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, pretty amazing film. So it's kind of. Um, I, I mean, do you remember the film? Do you remember the book called "Incredibly Strange Films" that came out?
0: Yeah, uh, I do actually. Yeah, I think I might even I have wanted that.
2: To do like a, a version of that for the twenty-first century. So you know, looking at mondo in a different way, and looking at um, looking at experimental films as a kind of as a kind of something that is a joy as opposed to torture watching you know and so so i'm trying to you know because i think you know people have this notion of films being difficult you know experimental films but they can be as weird and as way out as as you know kind of herschel gordon lewis or something like that if you if you immerse yourself in
1: the right way
0: brilliant Oh, thanks so much for coming on uh, the show. It was a real pleasure to talk yeah, to you.
1: Well, yeah, Mr. Sean, um, I, I I could, I, I could happily, we could, I could, I could, I could happily just carry on talking. <laughs>
0: and we are back that was a good interview i enjoyed that um what did you think mr satire oh yes yeah, very
1: good uh, like i said uh we we covered lots of ground we could have covered a lot more ground a lot of ground uh you know in the sort of psychogeography sense of the word and the and the literal word it's a it's a book actually it makes you want to go out into the into the world into the from the from the page to the sensual world and uh you know you, you follow the path and experience these things for yourself direct experience
0: he's definitely he definitely feels like a fellow traveler doesn't he in every sense of the word yes
1: <laughs> in, every, in every in every conceivable sense of the word yes definitely
0: yeah i mean it's interesting i i love this idea that i mean we were talking about this before we started recording this idea of like areas being kind of imbued by the films that are made about them or you know kind of uh these kind of strange occult links into things i I find that really fascinating it's something we do ourselves we know we we personally visit we're guilty of that we're definitely guilty of that that. Uh, yes totally and i think we'll be back next week with carl abrahamson if all goes to plan um don't don't forget to follow us on instagram that's a good place to keep up with us uh at at sitting now uh s-i-t-t-i-n-g-n-o-w and of course come to the website sittingnow.co.uk we're going to start publishing more articles there And as soon as the weather in England gets a bit better, we can start doing videos. That's my current excuse (laughs) for why we haven't done it yet. But we do have videos planned, um, which will be on YouTube. So come and subscribe to us over on YouTube at sitting, well, just sitting now, S-I-T-T-T-I-N-G-N-O-W. Anyway, we will see you next week. Absolutely.